In late July of 2003, Nilsa Arismendi was walking back to her hotel room with her boyfriend, Ace Sanchez. On the way, she saw their pal Devin parked in one of his usual spots and decided to ask him for a ride to run an errand. She looked back at Ace, waved before getting in, and was never seen again. I'm Colby. I'm joined by my two best friends, Laura and Marina, and this is Grim. So Colby is joined by her co-host Duplo, who is a very large cat who is all up in her face. You, you may have heard, heard. Yeah. yeah, in the intro. He, he had a little spot stop. in the intro. Well, you know, the last episode we featured Fallon, my dog. So I think the cat just wants some love today. You know, okay, you know, everybody it's deserves true. a chance to be on Grimm. <laughs> it's a it's the fame maker. That's what Grimm is. <laughs> All right, so speaking of all things grim, um, we have some super exciting news. We hit a thousand listens woo-hoo, on our woo-hoo, podcast. Woo! woo. <laughs> in and our first month. Yes. Yeah, within our first month. Which was a personal goal for us. Don't know why. We picked it arbitrarily. It doesn't mean nice anything. Nice even number. Just nice even number. We yep. wanted to see all those zeros up there with our number or your name. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So we wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our gremlins for all of your love and support. Please keep sharing us. Please keep giving us feedback. Um, we love to hear from you. Again, if you guys have case suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram um, or you can email us. Again, we'll give you some of the contact information towards the end of the show. Um, but but thank you, really. Like We are just overwhelmed by the outpouring of support that you guys have given us so thank you thank, thank you. you and we're um enjoying giving you content we are having an absolute blast so yep can't wait for the next week like as soon as we finish one episode we're like yes the next on to the next <laughs> we continue to have more interesting google searches every week <laughs> so it is oh, excellent yeah we're for sure flagged by the fbi just wait till I tell you what I was Googling with this one. <laughs> Can't wait. So so let's let's jump into this. So on July 25th, 2003, Ace Sanchez watched his girlfriend, Nilsa Arismendi, get into Devin's van late one night outside the Almar Hotel. Several days pass, and there is no sign of Nilsa. Ace is worried. It's really, really not like her to go missing, like no call, no show. Um, something had to be very wrong. The two have been inseparable since they got back together about seven years prior. Um, panicked, he tries to find Devin to see if he can help him pace together where Nilsa is, but he can't find him. Ace tries to report Nilsa missing, but the cops don't take him seriously, and they kind of just say, you know, give it a few more days. She'll show up eventually. That seems to be a theme in some of our... It does. It does very seem frustrating. to be a theme. Isn't there a show called The First 48 where, like, <laughs> if someone goes missing, those that initial investigation yeah, is but very just, important just give it a couple days so that we can be completely useless let's make sure we're outside that crucial window yeah. before we start looking <laughs> let's make sure we're sure they're actually missing <laughs> um days later right so ace tries to report her missing mm-hmm. after a couple days her mother and her sister actually go to report her missing as well this time the cops listen they file a missing persons report and they help the family put up flyers for her uh as a side note the flyers aren't super helpful they don't have a recent photo of oh. Nilsa, so they use a photo of her shortly after a jail stint where she was 65 pounds heavier oh, than no. she currently is. 
Um, I guess jail food is very high in carbs, so <laughs> that's common. That's fair. <laughs> it is, yeah. They want to fatten you up and slow you down. Yep. Um, they also don't refer to her by her street name on the flyer. She goes by Maria, not Nilsa, um, but the flyers say Nilsa oh. Arizmendi is the person who's missing. So not the best flyers, mm-hmm. but you know what? They, they still help the family. They're out there. They're getting the word out that they haven't seen Nilsa in a while. So a couple weeks go by, no reported sightings of her. Um, actually, on August 8th, Ace gets arrested, not for anything to do with Nilsa's disappearance, but for possession of narcotics. Mm. Um, while he is in jail, he uses this as an opportunity to tell anyone and everyone that his girlfriend Nilsa is Aww. disappeared. So him. go Ace. We love that yeah. about him. Um, he gets the runaround from a lot of people because they're like, okay, buddy, like, you know, the significant other, usually the prime suspect, like you're in here for drugs. We're not really listening to anything you're saying. Um, but he does eventually find somebody who takes him seriously and they give him the mailing address for the Connecticut state police department in Hartford and he mails them a letter. It works, uh, because Hmm. detective Robert DeRowan is assigned to investigate Nilsa's disappearance. I just want to say that's actually really refreshing because mm-hmm. I, I think that the majority of those letters probably just get thrown in the trash. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Somehow mm-hmm. that person who did hear him out definitely gave him the right contact information. That's good. Um, before we jump into talking about the investigation into her disappearance, I want to give you guys a little bit more information on Nilsa and Ace's situation in 2003. So... Nilsa Arizmendi was born on January 29th, 1970. She was raised by her mother. Um, Very difficult to figure out what her mother's name actually is. I Mm. read an entire book on this case where the mother was referred to as Valeria. Mm -hmm. And then I read Nilsa's obituary. So I guess, spoiler alert, she is not, this is not going to go well for her. (laughs) Um, And her mother was referred to as Carmen. So I am going to call her Carmen and I'm going to hope that that's her mother's Mm. name because I would think that the obituary is probably correct. Mm -hmm. Um, So she was raised by her mother, Carmen, and her stepfather, Ricardo. She grew up in the housing projects in Hartford, Connecticut with three sisters. Uh, Nilsa was a really good student and she Mm. loved school until she got pregnant at 14 and dropped out. Um, In a few more years, she actually had two more kids. (gasps) So by the time Nilsa was 18, she had three children. It was a lot of responsibility for a young mother, but she loved her kids so much. Um, She especially loved to celebrate the holidays with them. Christmas was her favorite, but she would really, really go big for Easter. Uh, When I first started researching this case, um, it was around Easter. Mm -hmm. So I I was getting a kick out of reading like how she made like these very extravagant Easter baskets and would try to buy like the biggest chocolate bunny for her kids. Um, So, you know, young mom, but she she really she tried. She she loved her family. Shortly after her third child was born. Right. Remember, she's 18 Mm -hmm. around this time. She starts using heroin. Oh, no. Um, When she gets pregnant with her fourth child, she does stop using heroin during her pregnancy She actually stopped with the assistance of a methadone treatment program, um, and it was at the clinic where she reconnected with her childhood sweetheart, Ace Sanchez. So he helped her stay clean um, until shortly after the fourth child was born, but the two of them unfortunately relapsed after that happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that going both ways. Mm -hmm. They're like really support each other, but then if someone falls off the wagon, they're probably dragging the other Mm -hmm. one with them. Yep. Mm -hmm. Precisely. Um, so as a side, right, the two of them are using drugs heavily. So Nilsa's mother actually steps in to raise all of her children for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says that Nilsa always tried her best to stay in touch, and she would see her kids as often as she could. So she didn't live with them either. Which is probably good at <clears throat> yes. this time. 
in fact, in the summer of 2003, when this happened, her and her boyfriend were actually living at the Almar Hotel on the Berlin Turnpike. They were each smoking 20 to 30 pieces of crack per day. They would shoot up a bundle and a half of heroin. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, I don't. I I'm not an expert, surprisingly, but doing a little quick math, that's a lot. I'm sorry. What what was that again? Twenty two to what? She did twenty to thirty pieces of crack per day, and at the same time, also did ten to fifteen bags or a bundle and a half of heroin. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had to look it up. I So my Google search was, how much heroin is too much heroin? What is a lot of crack to do? <laughs> um, it turns out that 10 to 15 bags of heroin per day is actually like standard for a very oh. severe user oh. of heroin. Um, that has to be so expensive. It oh, yeah. It is, actually. I looked that up. Very easy to find out how much heroin costs, by the way. Don't know why. Um, it cost her between 450 and like $1,700 a week. Oh, and, this and, this is, my God. and this is why drug addicts steal things. Oh, because oh my gosh. How do yes. you afford that? Oh. Well, and th- that's just the heroin. That's not the crack, which I know crack is cheaper, right, than cocaine. It has a similar effect. Um, but again, I had to look it up because I don't know a lot about crack. Um, and it said that the effects are really only felt like five to 15 minutes after you do it. So I could see how somebody oh, yeah. would go okay. through so, so much in a day. And the reason they did both drugs, the crack gets you wired and amped up and the heroin helps bring you right back down. So it's a nasty cycle where you kind of need both drugs once you're that heavy into the usage. Um, so to get by, because we've discussed this is a very expensive habit, Ace actually sold drugs. Um, and Nilsa would sell her body. So oh. she was frequently seen hustling on New Britain Avenue uh, as a sex worker. So I would say times were rough. Addiction is a bitch. Uh, shortly before her disappearance, Nilsa and Ace actually discussed going to rehab together. Oh. Um, and she seemed like she was going to go, but she never got the chance to. Oh. So that's a little bit more about Nilsa and her boyfriend. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the investigation into her disappearance. Um, Detective Robert DeRowan of the Weathersfield Police Department is assigned to the case. I'm just going to say up front, he's going to make a couple mistakes along the way. We're going to get a little frustrated with him. But at the end of the story, we are going to be rooting for him. I promise you. Um, He really spends a lot of time and energy working on this case. So it's August of 2003. He goes to the Almar Hotel to look around the room where Nilsa and Ace were living, room 123. Because Nilsa and Ace were not around to continue to rent their room, the hotel owner actually removed all the couple's belongings and thoroughly cleaned the room out so it could be rented to other guests. So there goes any potential collection of evidence. Hmm. Um, While he's there, Detective Drowen, he actually doesn't try to do any kind of extensive search of the property. So he doesn't use like any chemical illuminants, like there's no luminol, but I, you know, in his defense, the room had already been scrubbed Mm -hmm. so they could turn it over, right, Mm -hmm. to continue to profit off of the space. Um, so the visit to the motel, or the hotel rather, is, is really not helpful um, to the case. So, so he actually goes and he enters Nilsa's information into the FBI's missing person database. He includes specifics on jewelry she might have been wearing, tattoos that she has that might help people uniquely identify her, past medical records, dental records, whole nine yards. He contacts correctional facilities to see if she was listed anywhere as an inmate. He even reviewed the national deceased person's reports looking for her. All of these efforts turn up absolutely nothing. Mm. Ace is at the top of a very short list of suspects. Um, it's not that they have any evidence against him. It's just that he's her significant mm-hmm. other, and that's often where you start, right, with the significant mm-hmm. other of the missing person. The boyfriend-husband did it. Yep. Almost always. Mm-hmm. 
On December 2nd, the police actually try to coax a confession out of Ace while they're interviewing him, but he is insistent he had nothing to do with her disappearance, and the police need to be talking to the man whose van he last saw Nilsa get into, their pal Devin. Mm. Um, Sort of around the same time, the police received a tip that Nilsa was actually last seen as a passenger in a 1985 Ford Econoline van driven by someone named William Devin Howell. Um, So, right, a little bit of a mismatch here. He's saying Devin, this person, William Devin. Um, So the detective, Detective Derone, actually shows him a picture of William Devin Howell. And he says, yes, that's that's the person I know to be Devin. Um, So Ace actually offers to take a polygraph test to try to prove his innocence. We know mixed results on that, right? Mm -hmm. Like some people just should not take polygraph tests. Um, Did he fail? He did fail. The first polygraph (laughs) test that he took, it showed deception. Um, So he did offer to take another one. Failed the first one. Let's try to beat it a second time. So on December 19th, he takes a second polygraph test, and the results are inconclusive. Hmm. So better than the first attempt, (laughs) but still not really helping him out. (laughs) I don't know. Quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Um, So like I said, they had received this tip that this guy, William Devin Howell, was last seen with Nilsa. Um, So once the police do the second polygraph test with Ace, they kind of start to focus on on bill right just to see if anything else pans out here um what was he driving in a conaline van is that like the white free candy van the yes. windowless van yes except this is blue okay okay yes but it still has free candy scratching it definitely has free candy scratching <laughs> okay. just making sure free puppies um, <laughs> marina would be in there <laughs> william devin howell or bill or devin i will refer to him kind of interchangeably because depending on who you're talking to it's like a point in time thing if it's a person who knew him from childhood he's oh. devin if it's a person who knows him from his adult years, he's Bill. Okay. Um, he actually had spent the years prior to 2003 in and out of prison, but largely for incidents related to driving without a license and all that would come with continually being caught for doing hmm. that. He actually only had a valid license for a year and a half of his adult life. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So the police are actually able to track down the van that Nilsa was last seen in. It was registered to a woman named Dorothy Holcomb or Dory, who happened to be William Devin Howell's current girlfriend. Okay. Detective Derowen finds Dory and the van, and he takes an interesting oh, approach. I'm sorry. There's a, Di- there's a Disney movie, Finding Dory, so I just... <laughs> finding said, Nemo? Yeah. No, there, there's... It's the sequel is Finding is Dory. Really? <laughs> so when you said she finds Dory, I'm sorry. He does find Dory. Giggle. She is not a fish. <laughs> um, but he, he has a unique tactic. So he and another detective pay Dory a visit, and they tell her that they're looking into a string of lawn equipment thefts, and they think this van is connected to the theft Mm. somehow. Dory tells the cops it's her van. She doesn't drive it ever. She says she lets a friend named Thomas drive the van occasionally, but she doesn't know where to find Thomas. I'm I'm sorry. I don't know about you guys. questions. Yeah, but... (laughs) When I am good enough friends with somebody to loan them, I don't know, my car, I, I probably know where they live. I, like, don't loan anybody my car. Like, I mean, I guess you guys I would. And I know where you live, but, <laughs> <laughs> I, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Cole. I don't know, though. Like, we don't have carless friends either. Like, I that feel like. Nor do I have a windowless van that if I had one of those, I might let somebody <laughs> borrow that. <laughs> so the, the detectives are like, okay, lady, like, Thomas is not real. Um, So they continue to press her, and they say, you know, we actually think the individual who drives the van is inside your house right now. And she's like, why do you think that? And they say, well, because when we drove up to your house, we could see a man standing in the kitchen. (laughs) Uh, So they say, I know he's inside there. Dory absolutely denies that they would have seen anyone in the house, and she tells them that they are harassing her, 
And she's going to call the police. Uh, good so tactic. <laughs> she, Dory literally calls the police on the police. She tells the dispatcher that these two men barged onto her property, stormed the castle, and were there to just harass her. Your dog, I heard you like police. <laughs> so we call police on your police. <laughs> Simultaneously, Detective DeRowan also calls the police and tells them, everything is fine. We are not storming the castle. We are just asking her some questions about this van that's in her yard. They get nowhere with Dory. She's hysterical. The two de- detectives eventually, they give up and they leave the property. Um, Dory never admits to them that anybody other than she and her children are inside the home. Bill, not a dumb man, shortly after this incident, decides that it's about time for him to head <laughs> south for the winter, which actually was something that he did regularly. Um, he was born and raised in Virginia, so he really did not do well in New England mm. over the winters. He found them to be quite unpleasant. I'm sorry, they didn't like stake out the house after the fact like to wait for him to leave i think that it was just that like they were still interviewing ace when this was going on Mm -hmm. and like they didn't have any evidence like one way or another so i I just i think it was almost like a two ships passing in the night like the timing Uh, was off kind of thing at this point several months have passed since the police were at dory's house looking into the van bill is long gone um, he has spent time with a friend in Virginia, and then he spent some time in North Carolina. So he's, he's nowhere near Connecticut right now. Um, has not learned from his past mistakes driving without a license. So while he is in North Carolina the day after Thanksgiving, he gets pulled over, gets arrested for driving without a license. And you know what? He posts bail. He must be a bad driver, too, because like not only is he being caught without a license, but he's being pulled over this many times. Right. Like, I didn't get pulled over on the way over here. I could have not had a license and <laughs> gotten away with it. I did have a license. I was going to say, for the record, but, she has yeah, a license. Just for the record. Um, but so he must be just also a terrible driver. I, I don't, I couldn't <laughs> find anything that specifically said he was, but the same thought went through yeah. my head. I'm like, okay, you have to drive carefully if yeah. you don't have a license. <laughs> um, Detective DeRowan has to be the luckiest human being in the world because as this is happening, at some point after Bill gets arrested, he finds out that Bill has a court date in North Carolina um, on January 30th, 2004. Somehow, he convinces the North Carolina authorities to hold Bill until he can get there himself to pick him up. Um, Don't know if you guys know this. This was after he made bail? Yes. So he, he's out on bail, right, for his driving offense. Oh, he's out on bail. And they found out, the Detective Jerome found out that he had this court date. So he's banking on Bill showing mm. up for his court okay. date so he can go pick him up. Gotcha. Um, it's an 800-mile trip to drive from Connecticut, which um, I actually don't think I said that this was taking place in Connecticut. I think I was just assuming, because you guys know this was Connecticut, mm. that our gremlins would know, but you know what happens when you assume. <laughs> <laughs> so so Detective Jerome makes the 800-mile trip. He gets down there. Bill shows up for court, right? Bill's trying to be a good dude, like do his time, knows he's probably going back Long to prison. He doesn't drive there. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so uh, Detective DeRowan arrests him on two counts of violating his probation, and he reads him his rights. Bill makes it very clear that he has no interest in talking about the misdemeanor offenses he's being arrested for. He will only talk to them and make casual small talk about his upbringing in Virginia and the scenery. After all, it is a long drive back to Connecticut. Yes, yes, it is. 800 miles. I did that for um, a friend's wedding. We drove down to North mm-hmm. Carolina, and it took us 12 hours mm-hmm. each way. Yeah. So I, I could see why he's like, you know, you guys want to make some conversation? Yep, yeah. <laughs> it's a lonely drive. Yep. Carpool karaoke. <laughs> that probably would have been better for Bill, honestly. <laughs> um, so Bill in the car 
is starting to wonder why these two Connecticut police officers drove all the way to North Carolina to get him. He's like the misdemeanor offenses. <laughs> yeah, he's like that's like why would you guys go white through glove all treatment. this trouble? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's getting the white glove treatment. Um, Detective DeRowan, not missing a beat, shows him a photo of Nilsa, and he says, "This is Nilsa Arismendi. She is missing." Bill's eyes get super wide. He immediately shuts down and says he's done talking without an attorney present. Mm. Okay. So now the police have Bill, but they don't have the van. The van was not with him. Um, he is going to go back to prison for violating his probation, but they got to find this van so they could try to tie him to Nilsa. On April 22nd, Detective Tom Northcott of the Bertie County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina locates the van. It was actually with Bill's buddy Harry in Windsor, North Carolina. So now, because the van is considered to be a crucial piece of evidence, guess where Detective DeRowan is going? <laughs> Back to North Carolina. <laughs> That's unfortunate that he didn't realize that while he was yep. already down there. He literally drives the flatbed truck down there to get the car himself. Oh, my gosh. So he and another detective go down there. They bring the flatbed. They get the van, put it on there, drive it back. When they arrive back in Connecticut, they search the van, and they find some typical things, you know, you'd expect to find in a landscaper's van, because that's Bill's profession. He's a landscaper. Children, dead bodies. <laughs> not, not quite. Not that quite. Full of candy. Yep, definitely candy. <laughs> they find extension cords, jumper cables, hedge trimmers, lawn equipment, and okay. tools. Um, Bill lived out of his van, though, so there was some other stuff in there, like bins of clothing, okay, business textbooks business-minded Bill, um, and adult videotapes. Oh, wow. Gotta have entertainment. Yep, have to. So with everything out of the van, they observe some of the stains that are on the interior of the van. There is a stain on the blue seat back. So the exterior of the van is blue and the interior okay. of the van is also blue. I couldn't tell if it was on the driver's side or the passenger side, but like that's where there is this red stain. Mm -hmm. um, they did some preliminary testing on scene and the test had indicated it was likely blood. So it seems like they had some sort of technology where they could like do like a sniff test almost for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, there was also a bench in the van that had very clearly had its cushions replaced. There were like pillows on the bench that weren't like sewn to the bench so they they looked like sofa cushions um so the officers could tell that somebody had probably somewhat recently replaced okay. these cushions um they were a different shade of blue too than the rest of the van's interior so the police send away a sample from the seat back for testing and they tested against bill and nilsa's mother right because nilsa's not there for them to get a sample mm. from nilsa um, and in September of 2004, it comes back with Nilsa's mom, Carmen, as being the mother of the source of the other DNA sample. Oh. So I, I think that's probably the closest they could get to being able to say, like, yes, this is Nilsa's right. DNA without in the absence right. of Nilsa. Yep. In January of 2005, the police actually do a second search of the van. Um, this time, they take samples from the carpet in the van as well. So, like, think about the van as having just, like, the driver's seat, the passenger's seat, and then there's it's kind of like an open area in the back where he stores a lot of the lawn equipment. So they take a sample of that carpet. Um, there was a red and a dark red stain on the carpet, but neither were a match for Bill or, or Carmen. So it means this DNA belonged to somebody else entirely, but mm. they didn't know whose it would have been. Um, by May of 2005, the police were honing in on arresting Bill for Nilsa's murder, right? They've got the DNA match. They've got the van. Um, they just need to talk to Bill's friend that he went to visit for Thanksgiving in 2003 before they can make their next move. Um, so speaking of 2003, let's talk about what Bill did when he fled the state of Connecticut and went on his, mm. little, his little trip south. So I had mentioned he was from Virginia, born and raised, 
every winter he would go to Virginia and he would visit friends there. Um, there was one friend in particular, Joseph Martin Ashley. He goes by Martin. Um, he went and he spent Thanksgiving with Martin. I see why they did. He was Devin before because they did the middle name. They thing. did the middle name. Yeah. Thing. Okay. Um, what did they do together while he was there with Martin, you ask? Well, Bill had his good buddy help him clean out his van. Martin said the van smelled overwhelmingly of body odor, but he helped his no. friend clean it out anyway. Gross. He's a trooper. Well, there's they, no shower in there. No. So. <laughs> they took out a weed whacker, a lawnmower, bags of clothes, light blue rug from the floor. Um, he said Bill removed a stained cushion from the bench. He rolled it up, put it in a large plastic bag, and he left it near the curb for trash pickup. In total, Bill probably spent about seven days in Virginia visiting this particular friend. So it's not like Martin would have suspected anything strange was going on. Like, Bill visited him mm -hmm. every year, multiple times a year. You know, his friend asked him to help him clean out the van, so he obliged. He's a landscaper. He's got a lot of stuff back mm -hmm. there. Um, once he leaves Martin's house, he goes to North Carolina to visit another longtime friend of his named Harry. Harry's the, the friend who, um, he kind of lives out like in the boonies. It's not exactly like a fun place. Bill doesn't really like visiting him, but mm. it's so isolated that it's kind of like a good place to lay low mm. at Harry's house. Um, and since Detective DeRowan gave Bill a ride back to Connecticut, that's why Bill's van was in North Carolina. Oh. Because yep. Bill did not drive it back. Yep. <laughs> so, so that's what they did in Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving of 2003 together. So jumping back to the investigation in 2005, the police show up in Virginia at Martin's house, and they tell him that they had been conducting surveillance on his home, and the officers saw him clean out the van with Bill. This is a lie. This did not actually happen. Um, but poor Martin, he bought it. Martin agrees to go to the police station for questioning, and I read that they held him there for six hours and bombarded him mm. with questions. Um, while he's there, they have him sign a written statement saying he helped Bill clean out the van during Bill's 2003 Thanksgiving visit. He says he had observed a blue seat bench with matching cushions, said the cushions were stained. Um, Bill rolled them up, put them in a garbage bag, put it on the curb. So really similar to like what you and I know to be the truth of mm -hmm. what happened during that visit, right? right. Um, he also says the van had a very, very bad odor. Now having confirmation that Bill disposed of questionable evidence, mm -hmm. Bill is arrested for Nilsa's murder on May 13th, 2005, while he's at his friend Martin's house. So we're kind of hopping between three different states, right? But Martin's in Virginia. So when they find Bill, he is in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as a side note here, I got a first grim fact for us. So Bill was arrested on a Friday the 13th, May 13th, 2005, was Friday the 13th. Um, Bill literally calls it Bad Luck Friday. I find it's funny. I find it funny that he calls it Bad Luck Friday because it was also the same day that former serial killer Michael Ross was executed in Connecticut's death chamber. Um, and for those of you who haven't heard of him, like I hadn't heard of him, he murdered eight women in the early 80s um, in Connecticut. He was the first and last person to be executed by the state. And he actually is the only prisoner to be executed in New England since 1960. He's on our list of cases to do. And he actually wanted to be executed and yes. like waived his appeals and asked the state to kill him. Hmm. I think uh, I think I know who I'm going to cover soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a new name. Michael Ross. Let's go. So <laughs> so Bill, right. Um, when he's arrested, he's brought to Cheshire Correctional Institute to bide his time until his court date on June 24th, 2005. We're familiar. <laughs> we are. <clears throat> oh, can I? So you said Friday the 13th. I have a grim fact for you. So someone who is very near and dear to my heart may or may not 
have been the unit manager at Cheshire in the unit that he was in. Um, Probably not at this point, probably later on in the story. Um, But this is a grim fact. Apparently, he loves Halloween. And he would, like, hide in his cell and jump out and scare the CO officers. (laughs) (laughs) What a playful sense of humor. That's so fun for someone being held for questionable maybe murder and that's just who i want to have jump out at me <laughs> just, just a little grim fact okay. yeah i love it you won't find that anywhere else you won't find that on any other podcast <laughs> I inside information <laughs> so while bill is in prison presumably celebrating holidays and popping out at correction officers as they walk by himself, um he meets another inmate and they bond pretty quickly this guy's name is thomas rodriguez aka tommy AKA Mason Marconi, which for the longest time I thought was Mason Macaroni. <laughs> and I'm just dumb and couldn't get it through my head that it wasn't. It's not important to the story at all, but I had to share that I literally thought this man went by Mason Macaroni. That's similar letters. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the two of them get to chatting, and Bill says he's there for the alleged murder of some prostitute he casually knows. Um, he said that like he knew her by her street name, Maria, but her name was Nilsa, so... In the car, when Detective Daron showed him the photo, and he said, Nilsa, Bill was surprised because he did not know this person to be Nilsa. Oh. It wasn't like a, oh, shit, I've been caught kind of moment. It was like a Nilsa, question mark, yeah. kind of a, a moment. Um, so as it turns out, Tommy fails to tell Bill that uh, he has ulterior motives for striking mm-hmm. up a conversation mm-hmm. with him. The two men actually have a mutual acquaintance, uh, Detective Daron. So Tommy meets Detective Daron back in the 90s when he's serving as a paid informant for one of his colleagues. Um, and even more recently, he was an unpaid informant of Detective Daron's himself. So he helps Daron by setting up drug buys in 2004, and he told Daron about the arrangement so he could send some men in for the bust. Um, in fact, Tommy is a well-known informant. He has collaborated on two murder cases and drug cases in the state of Massachusetts. So I would say... As far as, like, prisoners go and inform, it, it's known that Tommy is a bit of a snitch. Which, um, like, is a bad thing. Is if a you're bad an thing. informant, you don't want to be a well-known informant. Snitches get stitches. Exactly. I believe That's what Bill say. himself says that at one point in time. <laughs> there's some... Crap, I'm going to make myself look really bad musically here, but there's some song... It's not... Is this a grim is it fact? Aerosmith or something? No. There, there's some band that talks or sings about, like, snitches and really dislikes them. I thought it was Aerosmith. It was something with an A. Um, but he like really loves them because they hate snitches. Oh. Maybe it's a grim fact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I, just, I just know that whenever my child comes home from daycare and says like, so-and-so hit me, my husband will say snitches get stitches. <laughs> I'm like, maybe don't teach our child that. Let, let her, let her tell us who's hit, who's hitting her at daycare. So Bill does not know that Tommy is a snitch. So, you know, he's just divulging information to him kind of freely making a new friend. It could get lonely in jail. I get it. You know, open up to each other. Um, on May 30th, so remember, you know, Bill was arrested on the 13th, so the two men knew each other for a little bit of time here. Um, Tommy has his girlfriend call the Weathersfield Police Department so he can tell Detective Darrowan his really good news that he has. So he tells Darrowan that Bill admitted to beating the shit out of that girl in his van and actually broke her nose and threw her out of it. He also says that Bill talks about prostitutes. Like, a lot. Mm. Um, Specifically, how much he hates them. Mm. Bill mentions several times that the police don't have a body, so how could there possibly be a crime? Please see episode five. (laughs) He very, very (laughs) much abides by the nobody, no crime (laughs) mantra. (laughs) Nobody, no crime. Thank you. That was beautiful. Can we pause? Because I need wine. 
<laughs> yes. Nobody, no crime. The next day, Detective Jerowen gets back in touch with Tommy, and he's like, okay, when you phoned me, you became an agent of the state. And he implores him to proceed with caution in all future discussions with Bill because he wants to be real careful that there's no constitutional violations going on here. So he tells Tommy they can talk about anything except for Nilsa. They can talk about other things. Don't know what other things Detective Jerome has in mind, but he tells Tommy they could chat about other things. Um, as soon as they get off the phone, Tommy mails his notes that he because he's been taking copious notes on everything mm. Bill has told him. Mails his notes to Detective Jerome. Um, as a side note, and our second or maybe third grim fact now of the episode, Bill is eventually going to learn that Tommy rats on him. Um, Bill Bill really went to extremes here. He does not like snitches. So Bill looked up information on all of Tommy's family members, and he knew where they all lived. Oh. He wrote all of this information down, and he had another inmate deliver a message to Tommy telling him that Bill would kill his family, especially his mother, if he were to ever get out of prison. Nice. Yikes. Um, yeah, Bill's going to get some prison time for that. Mm. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> so he's going to get three years for yeah. that. I don't know if you saw this, but um, there was also another incident in prison where he beat the shit out of another inmate, like broke his eye socket, Ooh. beat the shit out of him because he was annoyed that he like didn't get rec time that day. And I think this other inmate said something smart to him and he just yeah, like yes. broke his eye socket. I That actually sounds vaguely familiar to me. For what it's worth, Bill does have a side to this story. Like, he says, I never told this Tommy guy any of this stuff. He says, Tommy was in trouble and needed to get out of jail free card. Um, he says, Tommy definitely knew who Bill was because it was all over the news that Bill had been arrested for Nilsa's murder. Um, so he didn't, Tommy doesn't need Bill to confess. He just needs Bill to give him enough information for Tommy to spin the story in his favor. Um, what do I mean by in his favor? Well, as a side note, I don't really think jailhouse informants have any incentive to be truthful whatsoever Mm. Um, because they usually give information in exchange for something. So in Tommy's case, he was serving a 20-year sentence. But based on the info he's going to tell police about Bill, he was able to cut a deal and walk scot-free. Wow. So when I read that, I was kind of like, why why would they ever be truthful? I I don't know how heavily – like the information of like an inside person would would weigh in a case like no, it this. No, definitely impacts credibility. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I have a, I have a lawyer question that you can edit out if it's if I'm throwing too much of a curveball at you. <laughs> but if so you know how he the detective said he wanted to make sure he wasn't going to break any rules so that he could actually get information that he could use in court. Can he still like in his brain use the information to help him make decisions and like search certain things even if he can't argue it in court? No, so it's called fruit of the poisonous tree. So, like, for example, if if police go into a house that they are illegally in and mm-hmm. they see something that leads them to something else, they can't use any of that. Oh. It's fruit of the poisonous tree. That's, like, the legal phraseology for it. I won't take us too far down this, but that's interesting to me because how can you prove that that's why you know to go like what if you just had a hunch to go look somewhere else so anyway we don't have to i just had a hunch to look in this one very <laughs> specific location at these exact coordinates <laughs> that's why you shouldn't do illegal things and you should get all of the warrants and so good stop. on this detective for yeah. following the rules i was just yep. curious cross your t's dot you. your eyes yes Told you. he's gonna make a few mistakes but we really love detective okay Tron. we all love right. him so um there were a few delays in the process so Bill, right, he's arrested on May 13th of 2005. 
The trial for Nilsa's murder does not start until January of 2007. My mind was literally blown because I think I've watched entirely too many hour-long crime (laughs) dramas where everything happens in the span of an hour. Um, So when I think of like case timelines in my head, I read this and I was like, oh my gosh, this is a year and a half later, the trial. But I think that's actually pretty normal, right? Yeah, that's not a very long time actually because the court systems are completely backed up and if somebody wants a speedy trial they get put at the front of the line versus someone that doesn't want to get tried yet and you got the state is lining up their witnesses Mm. and like before you're even going to trial you have court appearances Mm. and those are you know weeks apart so Mm. still to to someone who's not involved in that stuff normally that i'm with you colby that seems like a really long time and as a as an aside, I'm sure everybody has seen like the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard case, right? Because it's all over the news. You can't not see it. It's mm-hmm. all over TikTok, Facebook, mm-hmm. social media. Yeah, I, I can't blink and not see it. I had a few moments when I was researching this that I was just picturing like some of the funny like gifs or memes that I've seen <laughs> from the Depp Heard trial because there, there's just a few things in here that just like oh gosh, it just makes you shake your head. Um, so I'm I don't mean to make light of the entire situation, but this this trial was a bit of a clown show in some mm. ways. Um, so so you guys can kind of form your own opinion on this as I, <laughs> I talk through it. So the trial for the murder of Nilsa Arismendi begins on January 24th, 2007, in New Britain, Connecticut. Shout out to our neighbors. Um, with Judge Michael Sheldon presiding, Bill was represented by a public defender named Ken Simon, and representing the prosecution was Brian Perleski. Brian Perleski is the one I get a big kick out of the prosecutor. He's, he's awesome. So this trial is going to occur over the course of five days, and eight witnesses will testify, which I feel like from the other cases yeah. we've discussed, that's not a very long no. trial. No, and not a lot of witnesses. No. So on day one, Nilsa's boyfriend, Ace, testifies. Um, the prosecution shows him a photo of Bill's van that were taken in May 2005 when they you know, did the, the search of the van. And Ace confirms, yep, that's the same van I saw Nilsa get into. Um, and Ace says he himself was in the van just three weeks prior to her disappearance. He says that there's one thing different about the van, though. The cushions on the bench used to match mm. from his memory when he was in there. Ace said that he and Nilsa had a casual relationship with Bill. Whenever they needed a ride, Bill was happy to provide it in exchange for a little bit of gas money. Bill never asked any questions about why they wanted to go where they were going, which, by the way, was to score drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ace said overall he thought Bill was a pretty pleasant guy. Nilsa's mother also took the stand that day. Um, Carmen described a warm and loving adult daughter who was very family-oriented, never missed a single chance to celebrate a holiday with her family. And, you know, she says all of a sudden Nilsa just stopped showing up. It made Mm. no sense. At the time of the trial, it had been four years since Nilsa was last seen. Um, So her family knows in their hearts that she is dead because there is no way that she would have been out of touch for this amount of time. And she had four young kids, right? Her mom lived in the same house. Her phone number hadn't changed. Her siblings' information hadn't changed. Nothing. So they they knew, like, Nilsa is Mm -hmm. not somewhere on, like, of her own accord. She Mm -hmm. is definitely no longer with us. And Bill Howell is like, no, no, she gone-girled me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bill's still kind of like, I don't don't have anything to do with this. (laughs) Nilsa? Um, I don't know. He's like, I know a Maria. I don't know a Nilsa. Um, The defense thinks they're going to be crafty, and they try to get Carmen to introduce some doubt about Ace. So remember, Ace was the initial suspect for the crime. So they say, you know, hasn't Ace recently changed his appearance? Um, didn't he, didn't he cut his hair? Didn't he always have like long distinctive hair? And he cut it. He must be concealing a dark secret if he cut his hair. Carmen's like, 
no, I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form that Ace was involved mm. with what happened to my daughter. And me personally, like, think about how we were talking about changing our hair today. Like, if somebody mm. assumed we were hiding a dark secret, they'd be know. right. You don't know what I did this weekend. <laughs> yeah, they'd be right. You know what happens when you assume. <laughs> was it Mean Girls when they were like, why is her hair so big? It's full of secrets. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Ace's hair was so big previously. He had to shed those secrets. He would pass the poly. <laughs> yeah, now he would, yes, with his new hairdo. <clears throat> so that that's pretty much it for the first day of the trial. On the second day of the trial, Detective Jerome is up first. Um, that car ride that he took back from North Carolina with Bill, it was determined to not be allowed into evidence because Bill had invoked his right to remain silent, so the exchange between he and Bill in the car was ruled custodial interrogation. Um, I need to consult an attorney here. <laughs> Marina, what is cons- custodial interrogation and why is that bad? Or maybe it's not bad, but... Well, so when you have custodial interrogation, that's when the Miranda rights kick in, which, you know, we've all heard them. You have the right to remain silent mm-hmm. if you want an attorney. You so- do have the right to be an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> um, so the fact that he was in custody, he was not free to go. And the fact that the police officer was asking him questions that does trigger Miranda and under Miranda, as soon as you affirmatively say that you want an attorney, you can't say like, I don't know, I think maybe I should talk to an attorney like that may not be enough. But if he said, I'm not saying anything more, I want an attorney. He can't ask him any questions after that. And if he continued to do so, it becomes inadmissible. Okay. So I I did read that it following what you said, it meant that any conversation they had in the car, um, including the look of shock that Bill had Mm. when he was shown Nilsa's photo, they were all inadmissible. If Bill, however, would have taken the stand to defend himself, these things could have been used to impeach him. Again, Marina, my lawyer friend, how <laughs> yes. could they have been Translate, used in please. <laughs> so that's an exception to the Miranda rule. So if it's, it's inadmissible, but if he decides to voluntarily testify and he says something in contradiction. So, you know, say he's in the car and he says, I murdered her. And then, you know, that's inadmissible. But then he gets on the stand to voluntarily testify. And he said, I had nothing to do with her murder. They can use that statement to impeach him and affect his credibility. But Uh, it's not admissible to prove his guilt. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense then. You're so smart. (laughs) It's like you you went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The judge also rules that the blood that Detective Duro, and I don't think I mentioned this, but um, he did take a blood sample from Bill when he arrested him that day, and that could also not be used um, hmm. because he didn't have legal representation at the time the sample was collected. Right. So why am I telling you guys about the things that aren't allowed in the trial? I well, assume they're damning. Well, <laughs> it's because I want to emphasize that the defense's only strategy is to prove the incompetence of the police department. Oh. Not to prove their client's innocence, but to... It, to prove incompetence. So um, the police had made these errors, in quotation marks, um, plus a few other things. So remember that they used that old photo of Nilsa on the Mm -hmm. missing persons flyer, and they failed to include the name she'd be known as on the streets. Um, They also had the wrong last seen location on the flyers. Mm. Detective Duron had filed bogus paperwork to try to stop Bill's girlfriend, Dory, from fleeing. Um, Detective Jerome kind of said, oh, my bad. I thought I was filling it out referring to Bill, which like he definitely knew what he was doing. It was just like a questionable tactic that I think is kind of in a moral gray area. Mm. Um, but it accomplished the result that he wanted. Right. Mm. He didn't do any forensic testing at the hotel the day that he went there. 
but we all know it mm-hmm. really probably wouldn't have mattered because it wasn't the crime scene. Um, also, it, can you imagine the forensic evidence oh. that you would get out of a hotel uh, room? I don't want yeah. a black light in there. That, have you guys seen that Family Guy episode where they go into a hotel room and they turn on the black light and there's just like farm animals everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> he also, right in addition to the bogus paperwork to keep Dory from fleeing with the van, he lied to Dory about why the cops were at the house. Remember, he said that they were there to investigate lawn equipment theft, and that really was not why they were there at all. Um, Detective Rowan said, sometimes, you know, cops tell teeny tiny little lies to try to avoid tipping somebody off and the possibility of them fleeing. And this was just an example yeah. of one of those times that you needed to do that. Detective Rowan is in no way, shape or form phased by the defense attorney's yeah. tactics. Um, he's a smart guy, too, and he admits to some of the small errors that he made to try to seem reasonable. He wants to be held accountable for his mistakes, but he maintains integrity and authority on the big ones. Good. For example... When it came time to talk about Daron processing the van, he depicted his actions as flawless. No way was he going to let this dweeby little defense attorney depict him <laughs> in poor light. Nope, he never stepped in the van. He stood a safe distance away and just observed. He peeked his head in very quickly, but it was just one time and it was super fast. <laughs> he was meticulous in his handling of tubes of blood when, Bill, when they were taken from Bill and they were transported to the lab. No broken seals or leakage on his watch. Everything was perfect. <laughs> Detective Rowan finishes up his testimony, and I would say that the defense has not done a good job of making him look not credible, so he's looking pretty good, sitting pretty on the stand right now. Good. On day three of the trial, Chris Suddock, a detective for Connecticut Central District Major Crime Squad, walks through the details of his impeccable search of Bill's van back in May of 2004. Um, The court allowed the bloodstained seating material from the bench into evidence. The replacement cushions weren't allowed into evidence. I didn't see why. Um, but it actually didn't end up being a very big loss for the state because mm-hmm. they were the replacement cushions. They didn't have any blood or anything on them. So that, you know, that guy basically is just kind of like adding credibility to what Detective Daron said. Like the inspection was immaculate. The immaculate inspection. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Thank you. The next witness was an assistant director at a forensics lab in Meriden, Connecticut. He, he basically also testifies that the samples that went to the lab were immaculately handled. There's no funny business afoot. Like, everything was ironclad here. Chain of custody. Mm-hmm. So the, the court actually wraps up for the weekend at this point. And um, the defense attorney, Attorney Simon, has an odd request for his client, Bill, that he asks the judge. He says, can Bill be moved to a new cell because his current one is too cold? Too cold for this Southern gentleman. It's so bad that Bill can't sleep, and it's actually impacting his mental acuity while in court. He also says, Bill needs a pen and paper to write on while he's in court. The judge is kind of like, all right, not my problem with the jail cell. I can't do anything there, but, you know, if your client wants pen and paper, like, we'll make that happen for him when we resume. Bill does have pen and paper in his little cell, though, um, because over the weekend, Bill writes a poem. And um, I thought that I needed to do a dramatic reading of the poem for everyone. Yes. So that's what I'm going to do now. Yes. I'm ready. An innocent man, I sit in jail. An innocent man, I can't make bail. They take my freedom, try to make me submit. But the crime I'm accused, I did not commit. I try to tell them and make them see that I am innocent and should be free. They do not listen and turn a blind eye. So I sit here as time ticks by. A jury trial now on my mind. I pray my innocence they will find. Snaps for oh, Bill. Snaps for Bill. <laughs> Was that a iambic pent- pentameter? 
I literally had the same thought and I was like, crap, I remember enough from English 101 to yeah. know that that's a thing. But same Shakespeare. That's all I know. Yeah. And uh, it's it's not a haiku. So um, sorry, Duplo is trying to give you some ASMR here. <laughs> that was hashtag deep. <laughs> it Thank was. You. Yeah. I, you know, I, I get we said this with um, I think it was one of the the guys in the, the Cheshire home invasion case. Like it's, it's kind of a shame when people oh, yeah. have like these really cool talents and they just like focus on other things like more nefarious things mm-hmm. <laughs> i could not write a poem probably that, that, that would read this well so go bill um as a side note like we do a lot of hunt a killer type stuff like you know like the box sets mm-hmm. so while i was reading the poem i noticed that there were certain words that were capitalized that oh. didn't make sense like time ticks by so i was literally trying to find a hidden message there, there's nothing in this i've done too many too many crime things <laughs> okay so this is this is over the weekend. Um, so Monday rolls around, and uh, Bill's friend Martin takes the stand. So Martin is actually a hostile witness for the prosecution. I hadn't heard that term before. Totally makes sense. Um, Bill's his friend. He does not want to testify with anything that's going to hurt Bill. So uh, Martin had actually been subpoenaed two weeks earlier, and he tried to fight it, but he lost. He was basically bought a plane ticket and transported from the airport to <laughs> Bill's trial. So I thought that was nice. I didn't know that they would pay for you to come up here. Makes sense. They want yeah. you here, right? Right, yeah. yes. Yep. Um, so this is where I said, you know, it's kind of a clown show. The clown show begins. Martin takes the stand, and uh, he seems to have amnesia. He <laughs> cannot recall anything. He doesn't remember how long before Thanksgiving Bill was visiting him, if Bill celebrated Thanksgiving with him and his wife, what kind of car Bill was driving. So Proleski shows him photos of the van, inside of the van, exterior of the van, and Martin's like, Oh, yes, that van. <laughs> yes, that's definitely what Bill was driving. Um, and it was also the one that I helped him clean out. So Martin says on the stand that the van contained regular odors, like grass, <laughs> oil, and some very minor body odor. He said, I don't remember there being any cushions on the seat. Um, Bill definitely didn't remove any of them. I never saw him. Proleski is once again like, oh, come on, Martin, let me refresh your memory, my pal. So he <laughs> says, look, I have five pages worth of statements that you made back in 2005 when you were questions. questioned. You signed it in 19 places, <laughs> or you initialed it in 19 places, and you signed it in five. You have seen this document. You know what I am talking about. Proleski also reminds him that in the May 2005 statement, he says he emptied the van together with Bill, Um, The statement goes on to say, I remember the van had a light blue rug. I saw a bench in the back seat of the van. I saw the bottom cushion and the back cushion were present. I saw both red and dark red stains on the cushion, and they were super noticeable. He reads another statement. While inside the van, I smelled a very strong odor. It wasn't gas, oil, (laughs) or grass. It smelled (laughs) like body odor. And finally, he says in the statement, I watched Devin take the back cushion off and roll it up and put it in a plastic bag that he then put on the curb to go out with the trash. So the defense basically is upset <laughs> that they had, you know, Martin admit this. It's, it's not good for him. Um, so they try to have the statement thrown out. They claim that it's unreliable. They say that Martin was coerced by the cops. Um, he was taken by surprise because a large group of cops just swarmed his house out of nowhere, showed up wanting to question him. They talked to him for two hours at his house, four additional hours at the station. Like, it, it's a lot. Um, so they're, they're basically saying, like, Martin was really nervous. He just wanted to give the police whatever they wanted so he could go home. Like, that's he, they basically were saying, like, jurors, put yourself in his position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the judge is like, 
no, 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 no. The <laughs> cops did not do anything wrong here. Like, yeah, maybe 10 of them showed up at Martin's house, but only two of them questioned him at the station. So that was reasonable. So they're like, okay, this stays. Martin wasn't in custody. He stayed of his own free will. He mm-hmm. made these statements out of his own free will. And the judge is like, you know what? These statements are going to stay, and I'm going to read the rest of it to the court now. The judge immediately reads something that he is not supposed to read out loud to the jury. He says, after Devin got out of jail in Connecticut, he stopped at my house. Oops. Proleski is like, God damn it, not you too. <laughs> like, come on, people. He immediately objects. He's like, your honor. But the damage is done because the jury already heard the statement. So now they know that Bill was in jail right before he went to visit Martin that fall. And that's actually my question. So it's because they, it, does that like color what the jury thinks? You're not supposed to say that. You can't imply it. Any of his previous things? Ms. Yeah. Lawyer. <laughs> I mean, there's certain, there's certain things that can be admitted for, for prior crimes, but the DMV violations would be completely irrelevant. Oh. And even when you're, you know, even when they have some of these inmates who are brought in for murder trials, like the jury can't see them in prison tans and they can't see them handcuffed. Like I sat through a murder trial in New Haven where the guy sat there unhandcuffed in a suit and tie and then he would walk out and they'd hand they he'd walk out handcuffed after the jury went away because it's it colors your yeah. opinion of them. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And so the reason that the prosecutor re- reacted so strongly is he knows the defense's next move is going to be they want to miss a mistrial trial because right. of yep. Um, so Judge Sheldon tells the court, you know, strike it from the record. Jury, you didn't hear that. Pretend you didn't Disregard hear it. They know the Disregard. jury. Disregard. You didn't hear that. <laughs> so when, immediately when the defense requests the mistrial, Proleski's like, guys, this is, this is not that bad of a slip up. Like a mistrial is super drastic. Let's just remind the jury again that they didn't hear it. <laughs> so the objection is overruled. Judge Sheldon says he, he didn't feel like this mishap would lead to any prejudice in the jurors because, you know, it was for something totally unrelated to this case. My two cents how would they know that it was totally unrelated to this? Right. It was for a motor vehicle violation. Why would they think that it was for a nonviolent crime? I feel like no matter what, like that can't be unheard. And because no. they don't give any further comment, like it must cloud their judgment. Definitely. To no. Well, you, you can't, can't just forget something. Yeah, you can't. The argument is that you can't unring that bell. Right. And yeah, I do find it funny, though, that the prosecutor objected to the judge himself. Yeah, immediately. I don't know why like, I think that's so on. funny. <laughs> <laughs> just imagine because usually you see like the objection against the the uh, defense or whoever the other person is but i don't know why that's funny i was me. just this whole trial like specifically this day i was just playing it in my head and it just felt like a little comedy of errors and the prosecutor like just he had been working on this case for a while now and he's like mm-hmm. guys come on like we got a path like do not get in the path <laughs> by the way i didn't realize this was judge you were it's in the superior court but this is judge sheldon who actually ended up on the appellate court knows criminal law like the back of his hand and is like the best like I argued a few appellate cases in front of him and like he knows what he's talking about he knows what he's doing so so probably like a very very out of character slip up yeah yeah slip up but I'm sure he rectified it oh I'm I'm sure yeah well what can you do like you said you can't unring the bell you can't make them unhear it so all you can do is tell them to Mm -hmm. pretend they didn't hear it and then you just set up an appellate issue for the defendant yeah (laughs) so the prosecution they get Martin to admit that Bill is basically his BFF. Um, They have talked on the phone. They have written to each other since Bill was arrested, which is important because it implies that they could have discussed what Martin would have said on the stand at trial. Mm. 
So yeah. really, him trying to walk back on these statements he made years ago, it had nothing to do with whether or not he remembered. It was because he didn't understand the impact of his statement when he made them back in 2005. But he sure understands the impact of it now. He's like, now that I know what the truth will do to my best friend, uh, I I'd change like the to truth. change my story. <laughs> yes. Um, he also admitted that he was financially supporting Bill. So at this point, I would say... Kraleski has painted a really good picture of Martin being a good friend who was actually telling the truth in his written statements mm -hmm. from 2005 and was only changing his tune now because he wanted to protect his friend. Definitely. So they wrap up for the day. Things are not looking good for our boy Bill here, <laughs> um, but they're about to get much worse. <laughs> <laughs> so on the final day of the trial here, the most damning piece of evidence is Pieces, pieces of evidence are yet to come. Um, and it's looking like the jury already has more than enough to convict him. So what's left? Well, the victim's blood and DNA being found in Bill's van. The, the jury does not know about that just yet. Um, Tommy Rodriguez, the jailhouse snitch, has not yet had a chance to testify and say that Bill did eventually confess to him. He also was going to say that, you know, Bill threatened me and my family. So look, he wouldn't have done that if I didn't actually have this information on him. So at this point, Bill's lawyer actually advises him to take a plea deal that's on the table um, because he is confident that at the end of this day, there is not going to be a deal on the table anymore. Mm. Um, so Bill, while he's not thrilled, he knows that the deal for manslaughter one is 15 years versus the jury possibly finding him guilty of murder one and Bill spending 65 years in prison. Mm -hmm. So he takes the deal under Connecticut's Alfred Doctrine. I had never heard of this before, so I looked it up. So basically, this is where the defendant does not admit that they're guilty, but they concede that the jury has enough evidence to convict them. Oh. So it's not quite an admission of guilt, um, but Bill is going to go back to prison. This time, for 15 years. Mm. Not long after the trial, though, something interesting happens. A hunter stumbles upon what appears to be a human skull while out with his dog in New Britain, Connecticut. He immediately calls the police and they do a full search of the area. Over the course of the next two weeks, they find a total of 50, five zero bones belonging to three different women. Remember, when they searched Bill's van, there was a third person's DNA found. Wasn't Nilsa, wasn't Bill, someone else entirely. It's gonna take them six years before the police are able to make the connection. But in August of 2013, one of the women found behind the strip mall in New Britain, Connecticut, was identified as Joyveline Martinez, and she was a match for the sample taken from Bill's van. Oh, that's wild. Nilsa wasn't Bill's only victim. Now there's another woman. And what about those other two women whose remains were found with Joy's? Were they victims of Bill's too? This, Gremlins, is the question that I will leave you to ponder until our next episode. Oh, that's brutal. If you guys are enjoying Grimm, please rate and follow us on whatever your preferred podcast listening app is. Want to see case photos? Follow us on Instagram at Grimm Crime Podcast. Want to tell me you hate me for the cliffhanger? Send us an email at GrimCrimePodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Remember, listen, learn, and stay alive so you can hear the chilling conclusion of our discussion on William Devin Howell, Connecticut's most prolific serial killer. Mm -hmm.